if you think of your heating in your home, everyone has busy lives. We have families and friends and work and life. And we want just the heating just to work. And we are now bringing a new dimension to that question. We're saying to those customers, we now need you to do your heating differently. We need you to heat your homes in a low carbon way. So the biggest challenge is figuring out how we enable customers to have what they want, warm, comfortable homes in an affordable way, and doing so which moves us to low carbon. Welcome to Energy in Conversation, a look into our energy future through the eyes of people leading the way. I'm your host, Dean Somerville. Here in the UK, it's getting cold outside. Some might even say winter is coming. So it's the perfect time to talk about heat. Warm and comfortable homes, cooking, and hot water are some of the most basic needs we have. But as societies around the world pull together to reduce climate warming greenhouse gas emissions, heating uses a lot of energy, and not much of it is low carbon. Heat in all its forms currently accounts for a third of total UK greenhouse gas emissions, and half of that comes from households. The story is similar in many colder countries around the globe. In part one, we discuss why the problem of home heating is an equation with two sides, the energy efficiency of our homes and making sure the heat we put into them is low carbon. We look into the future of providing heat and ask what might work best in different homes. Many examples we discuss are challenges we're wrestling with here in the UK, but most of this applies in any country with chilly winters. If our end goal is to make sure that everyone is able to heat their homes affordably without harming the planet, What's the scale of this challenge? In the power sector, they've, they've made quite significant strides in, in decarbonising. Um, however, we, we can't really say the same for heat. My name's Adam Madgett, and I am the Northern Gas Network's project lead for High Deploy. 83% of the homes in the UK um, are using gas for heating their homes and cookers, and to try and replace that uh, with something that will will not disrupt the customers, will not uh, re- rely on um, significant infrastructure upgrades. Is really quite vast. So you know that, that the scale of that is 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 huge. It's not it's not to be underestimated. Unlike electricity, which flows into the home through the same wires and outlets, whether it comes from fossil fuels or renewables, heat is different. We might have to change the actual physical heating systems in our homes to decarbonize them. That's part of the challenge which makes it feel a lot more personal than changing our electricity supply. There are other challenges too, which we'll uncover through the episode. Our second guest this week knows a lot about tricky problems like heat, as he's been running an organization that focuses on heat, electricity, and energy efficiency in homes, industry, and everywhere in between. I'm Tim Rotheray. I'm the director of the Association for Decentralized Energy. How you get to low carbon heating The first thing that you have to think about is what is it that a customer wants? Customer wants to be warm and have hot water. There are two sides that make that equation. One is how you make the heat and the other is the speed with which you lose the heat. And the speed with which you lose the heat is the efficiency, the fabric of the building. So the first thing that you look at when you look at energy and how you do heating is can we cost effectively reduce the amount of heat that we're going to lose before we start even thinking about what how we're going to make the heat? And because that means we're going to use less fuel, you automatically get a carbon saving. Heating your home is like pumping up a bicycle tire. If that tire has a puncture, 
you have to keep pumping it up again and again and again. Or better yet, you patch the tire, stop the leak, and it stays pumped up much longer. Improving energy efficiency is like patching those leaks, or in the case of a new home, buying a puncture-proof tire. So it holds the heat, and you don't have to keep topping it up. Unfortunately, there are loads of leaky tires in the UK. Many homes are old and drafty. Poorly insulated homes are one of the leading causes of fuel poverty in the UK, when combined with low incomes and high energy prices. Over one in 10 households in England live in fuel poverty, with many families caught in a heat or eat dilemma. Have a listen to our last episode on digital home energy for more detail. With that in mind, making homes more efficient doesn't just cut down on energy use and carbon emissions, as Tim explains. It makes homes better, just nicer places to live, but it also gives you an enduring reduction in the cost of energy. They just need to buy less energy. There's a lot of work going on in this space, and we've posted some efficiency research on our website, which is linked in the show notes. But today, our focus is on the other variable in Tim's equation. The second thing is then to say, well, how, for the heat that we cannot, uh, the heat that we still need, how do we heat that? There are three kind of key ways, right? The first way is through electricity converted into heat in the home. The second way is through heat delivered to the home. And the third way is a gas. Let's take these one at a time, starting with electricity. As we mentioned in episode two, one main school of thought on decarbonizing energy is to first decarbonize electricity, then electrify as much as possible, including heat. Adam mentioned earlier that the UK has made good progress in cleaning up electricity generation. So it makes sense we might want to use that clean electricity to heat our homes. But how would that work? So your first is heat pumps, which are very efficient ways of making heat. Storage heaters, which use cheap electricity to make heat. They store it and they deliver the heat when you need it. They're the main ways of electrically heating a home. A heat pump essentially works like a reverse refrigerator where your fridge extracts heat from inside and vents it out the back, a heat pump extracts heat from outside your house, concentrates it, and uses it to heat a fluid or air, which circulates through your house. By capturing and concentrating heat rather than creating it, they're several times more efficient than direct electric heaters. There are two main kinds of heat pumps. One extracts heat from the air, and the other from the ground, which is more efficient since the temperature is more stable. But as Adam points out, you know, they're really designed for brand new modern homes with very good insulation um, or homes that have been retrofitted with very good insulation. If you're using one otherwise, then they really, they struggle to cope in, you know, the winter colder months. Air source heat pumps do indeed become less efficient when it's very cold, since they have to work harder to extract heat from the air. This is not usually an issue in the UK, but in colder climates it could be. It's not a problem for ground source heat pumps, since they are able to extract heat from the steady temperatures underground. Another solution is to use a top-up heat source, like a small boiler or electric heater, in combination with an air source heat pump to help out on those really cold days. This is sometimes called a hybrid heat pump. But if you have a leaky bike tire, that is a drafty house, neither type of heat pump is likely to work really well. You need a higher temperature source of heat to keep a leaky house warm. Heat pumps output lower temperatures than boilers, so have to run nearly constantly to keep a drafty house warm on cold days. This brings us back to balancing our equation. 
A heat pump is a great option for using green electricity to provide heat in energy efficient homes, but they're not a good fit for drafty ones. There are also challenges with shifting the entire heating demand onto the electricity system. The electricity system already has to work hard to adjust to big peaks and troughs in demand, and will have to be even more flexible as we add more renewables, which produce electricity when the wind blows or the sun shines, rather than when we feel like turning on our kettles. Adjusting electricity supply is not as simple as turning a dial up or down. Entire power stations need to be turned on and off. If we all start switching on electric heating when demand is already high from switching on our lights and appliances, the challenge is magnified. One way we could reduce the impact of switching heating over to electricity is asking customers to pay more attention to the times they use heat. This is where a storage heater comes in. As Tim said, a storage heater works similar to a normal electric radiator to make heat during times of lower electricity demand, typically overnight, and stores it for later in a well-insulated container. Think of it like a battery for heat. You can charge it up overnight and discharge it during the day. So storage heaters could help switch heating over to electricity without magnifying the existing ups and downs of electricity demand. But using storage heaters is different than using other on-demand types of heat. And people may have to change their behavior or expectations. So that's why all of this conversation about heating keeps going back to electricity, because a low-carbon future involves more power, and it needs energy customers to use their power differently, and part of that's heating. Let's move on to the next source of warmth Tim listed, heat delivered to the home. This is known as a heat network, or district heating. And that's probably the least known in Britain, but is better known in other parts of the world. What you do is you have a network of pipes that are insulated and they take hot water and they deliver the hot water to homes from a central point. And that central point is called an energy centre. One of the cool things about a heat network is that the energy centre can be a single heat source for hundreds or even thousands of heat consumers. So it's much easier to upgrade or switch to a cleaner heat source than by changing boilers in each individual house. And better yet, a heat network can use waste heat this is heat that would otherwise be vented into the air, which can be captured and used to heat homes nearby. There are lots of potential sources for waste heat. So you could have a power station. Power stations, when they burn fuel, they make waste heat. You could have an incinerator, your waste incinerator, an energy from waste plant. You could have a data center. Data centers need to be cooled and they produce heat. You could have industry. So most heavy industry has heat that can't be used at the end of the process. One example is in Islington, where 1,350 new homes and businesses will be kept warm using heat from the London Underground. And your heat network really works in towns and cities because, like with any network, you lose energy along the pipe and they work better when everyone's close together. What people in the, in the sector call heat density, when people are all close together, there's lots of heat demand, that's where they work best. Let's hear about the third source of warmth, gas. This is where most of the UK's home heating currently comes from, so there might be some perks to keeping our existing system, but cleaning up the fuel. Gas could be any gas that burns safely. So natural gas is what we use, which is methane. You can make methane from natural materials, biogases, all kinds of ways of producing those naturally. And then hydrogen is the other gas. Hydrogen 
could be delivered directly into people's home and burned in boilers. In the UK, the vast majority of homes are connected to the gas grid. Using gas for heating and cooking is the default experience for many people. So the idea would be to use this existing infrastructure to deliver low carbon or green gases. The really appealing thing is it's similar. Like, if you ask people about heating, the average person knows that there is gas central heating. And hydrogen is a gas and biomethane is a gas and it goes in a gas boiler and it burns and it makes heat. Great. Having something that we can give to customers which is similar to what they have, that's easier. It's more understandable. That's the appealing thing. As Tim says, biomethane and hydrogen are the main options for green gases. Biomethane is made using tiny microorganisms, which break down organic material like crops, manure, or agricultural waste. The idea is that organic materials absorb carbon dioxide as they grow, which helps balance out the carbon released when burning the biomethane. One drawback is that producing biomethane at scale means we might decide to use farmland to grow energy crops rather than food. Plus, the production and transportation involved in making biomethane would themselves cause greenhouse gas emissions. So the process would probably not be carbon neutral. So while biomethane may be greener in some ways than natural gas, it's not the clear solution for low carbon heat. There's growing interest in hydrogen as a low carbon fuel, but it's not the perfect solution either for reasons we'll explore. Because the transition to low carbon heat, whichever route we pursue, will require a large, long-term infrastructure change, there are a bunch of studies and pilot projects testing things out on a smaller scale first. And since the UK has an extensive gas network, it's in a good position to test whether switching to a gas like hydrogen is viable. In part two, we're giving you a window into one of these studies. Some questions need answering when considering a changeover to a new gas. How would it work? Where would the gas come from? And what would it cost? Atomworks for Northern Gas Networks. They're currently conducting a pilot study called HiDeploy in partnership with Caden and Kiel University. It's starting by blending a little bit of hydrogen, 20% hydrogen with 80% natural gas, into a closed gas network within Kiel University. HiDeploy, it's uh, split over two different stages. The main aim of the project uh, is to understand what the technical and safety issues that we need to overcome to introduce a blend of hydrogen into the gas network. The purpose of the project is to try and reduce carbon emissions without, uh, without disruptive change to customers. As a gas network, we're focusing on making sure that their network will be safe uh, and reliable uh, and operate as it does today, business as usual. Hydroploy is like a stepping stone, really, to potentially 100% hydrogen. So NGN are focusing on uh, that through their H21 project, uh, which is aiming to look at can we put 100% hydrogen in the gas network and can it operate as safe as it does does today. It's quite a, a larger stepping stone from 20% to 100%. So there's a lot more technical and safety evidence that's required in that process. Important evidence is currently being gathered through pilot projects like HiDeploy to find out how hydrogen would work in the network and in the home. All of the work that we've we've carried out as part of HiDeploy has indicated that there is no issues with introducing a blend of 20% and customers will not notice a difference. So they're contributing to uh, decarbonizing the gas network and haven't got to change their behaviors at all. It sounds great from the perspective of customer experience, but this relatively small proportion of hydrogen means only a small proportion of the carbon dioxide is removed from the heat supply. 
about 6% compared to burning 100% natural gas. Burning pure hydrogen reduces emissions much more, but still not down to zero for similar reasons to biomethane. It takes energy to produce the hydrogen, and current large-scale hydrogen production techniques still release carbon dioxide. Plus, taking that next step to 100% hydrogen is not a zero-disruption proposition. Here's Tim with more. That's tricky, and the reason it's tricky is because not all gases burn at the same speed. When you light a match, the flame appears on the match, and then it travels down the match until it burns your fingers. The speed at which that flame moves down that match is called the flame speed. Now, if I burn natural gas, it has a flame speed. I mean, it's much faster than a match, right? If I burn hydrogen, it's even faster again. And that means that if you have a boiler, if the flame speed is higher, what would happen is that the flame would disappear inside the tube where the, the gas was coming and there would be no oxygen and the flame would go out. If the flame speed is too slow, the gas would come out too quickly, it would kill the flame. So either way, you end up with no flame. It's not a direct swap for natural gas. So if we were to use mostly hydrogen in all or part of the gas network, we would also need to make changes to the appliances that burn gas, our boilers and stoves. This option would save carbon and allow people to keep familiar boiler technology, but would mean some disruption and investment for us. I mentioned that using biomethane or even pure hydrogen is still likely to result in carbon emissions. A lot of this is dictated by where the gases come from. In the case of hydrogen, on the surface this is a really eco-friendly source of heat. The only byproduct from burning it is water. But big reservoirs of hydrogen don't exist in nature, like natural gas, as most of it is locked up in other compounds. We have to make it, and large-scale methods aren't necessarily low-carbon yet. You can produce hydrogen either from a process where you split up methane and you generate hydrogen. And that process is known as steam methane reformation. When you do it, you get a pure stream of carbon dioxide produced. One thing that you could do is you could capture that carbon dioxide and then stick it in a hole in the ground, under the sea probably, as carbon capture and storage. <clears throat> Steam methane reformation, it's not carbon free because you do capture the carbon, you won't ever capture all of it. And also when you extract methane, you always get some leakage. Steam methane reformation is the most common current way of making hydrogen. But there is another way of making it, a process known as electrolysis. Very simply, by running an electric current through water, H2O, you can split the H2 and O into separate gases, hydrogen and oxygen. This process is as clean as the electricity used to drive it. HiDeploy, the pilot project that Adam manages, makes hydrogen through electrolysis, using renewable energy generated at Keele University. But they're using relatively small amounts, because remember, they're only blending 20% hydrogen in with 80% natural gas. To scale this up enough to make a dent in the carbon emissions coming from home heating across the country, we would need a way of making lots of clean hydrogen. This might be an expensive proposition. The question that we have with hydrogen will be around that how much can we make, how much does it cost, and who wants it? One potential drawback of using hydrogen for home heating is that it would have to compete with other uses. Hydrogen burns really hot at over 3,000 degrees Celsius, which makes it useful for heavy industry 
and other energy-intensive activities where electricity doesn't provide enough oomph. Tim has a great analogy for this. Imagine you owned a haulage firm and you have loads of trucks and you've got little baby trucks and you've got massive 18-wheelers and you've got refrigerator, you've got all of the trucks. And someone phoned you up and they said, I'd like you to move a double bed for me. You're going to send the smallest van you can because it's all that's needed. It's the most cheap thing to do. And the 18-wheeler you'll keep for the person that says, I've got a container that I want you to take to my port. The problem with using hydrogen to heat homes is it's kind of a little bit like you might be using the 18-wheeler to move the double bed because someone else really needs that hydrogen. They need it for doing really critical things which make our lives livable. And if someone has a hydrogen boiler, the risk is that the demand for the hydrogen is so high that the price is high because that's how markets work. And they could end up with very expensive heating. So that is the really key thing. Certainly a big price hike for heating would not be popular. But like any emerging industry, costs can drop significantly as production scales up. I always find it quite uh, amazing, really, how far we've come in such a short time in the UK. Um, I joined NGN just over four years ago, and the discussions around decarbonising heat through hydrogen really just started, you know. Um, and now we've got um, multiple gas distribution networks uh, working on an array of, of, of hydrogen for heating projects because we need to understand the credibility of, of introducing low-carbon heat via hydrogen. The sheer variety of potential options is the other reason why decarbonizing heat is such a tricky problem. Not only will it require changes to our homes, but there is no one-size-fits-all solution at a country or even regional scale. Some options are difficult to scale up, especially when the potential heat source is useful in other ways, like electricity or hydrogen. Some of these require entire new heating systems and change behavior, while others involve less disruption. The right way of supplying heat is really dependent on the individual situation, the building itself, its location, and who lives in it. If you live in a rural part of the UK and stay at home most of the time so need warmth throughout the day, maybe a storage heater is your best option. If you're building a new, really efficient home, a heat pump could be effective and run cheaply. And if you live in Stockholm, your home might be warm thanks to waste heat from a local incinerator, captured and delivered to you through a district heat network. The heat is hyper-local. It's very much about people and place. The thing that should dominate this is that sense of a system where the customers is understood. It's not really about the tech. The real transformation is the way in which we go about all of this. All of this means that we need a completely different way of thinking about the problem of warm, low-carbon homes. Right now, the UK has a near-universal system, but it's wasteful and not low-carbon. The future is looking much more fragmented, but that complexity is not necessarily a bad thing. It can mean a tailored service and more comfortable home for everyone, if we do it right. To change culture and to change the way this is done, you need legislation, you need regulation. The only way that you can do this is get industry and government to do it together. You can't do it all as government because you depend on companies and you can't just leave it all to the market in the hope that people getting upset about uh, climate change will mean that we sort it out. Because th the thing that you find is that you talk to people about climate change and they say they're worried and then they feel that they are incapable of acting. In the end, what it boils down to, you're welcome, is a shift in how we think about cleaning up home heating. 
First and foremost, we need to drastically improve our energy efficiency, reducing the amount of heat required and allowing people to have a warm, comfortable home at lower cost. That's a clear win-win for our comfort and the planet. And then we sort out the best low-carbon heating options for different homes and people. It's important for the government and industry to have a clear plan, since some of the key decisions won't be made by homeowners themselves. You can't decide to switch to hydrogen on your own simply by purchasing a compatible boiler, as it still requires big infrastructure changes to deliver that hydrogen to you. The same goes for delivering heat via a heat network. And there's the compounding factor for renters like myself who don't have much of a say about replacing a boiler with a heat pump or even improving our home's energy efficiency in the first place. But if the legislation, regulation, and infrastructure are in place, it could make it a lot easier for us as individuals to decide what's the best way to move toward low-carbon heat. We have to make this easy. We have to make this default. We've got to make people want to do this. I think people want to. If you say you can be as comfortable and you can be green and it can be no more expensive, then people would be, uh, yeah, sign me up. Thank you very much to today's guests, Adam Madgett and Tim Rotheray. If you want to learn more about low-carbon heat and energy efficiency, visit energy-inst.org slash podcast for further reading. And if you like what you heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and help other people find us by leaving a rating or review. In January, we'll randomly choose one lucky reviewer to receive a 100-pound voucher for their honest feedback. We'll be back in January with the second set of episodes from this season, looking at nuclear power, access to energy, and the future of today's oil and gas companies in a world banishing carbon emissions. Energy in Conversation is brought to you by the Energy Institute. This episode was produced by Sarah George, Daniel Deveza, and Essen Sarin. Music on this episode is by Jack Keeney and me. I'm your host, Dean Somerville. If I could have a, an energy superpower, I mean, other, other, other than like, so it would be my own ability to fly, obviously. How cool would that be? I mean, like, th that, if I can have anything, I just, just like, let me fly without, an en without any energy. Just do it. That would be awesome. It doesn't really solve the energy crisis, but I would have some fun wheeling off the cliffs of Dover. Yeah, occasion, and then just nicking people's ice creams to yeah. go and fuel it. Just yeah. bring it on.